This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'm Gordon Stobart. I'm from the Institute of Education at the University of London. And I'm talking about testing and identity today. And what I'm looking at is the effect that assessment can have on us, how we see ourselves, how how it affects our learning, particularly the use of labels and tests that uh, claim to tell us about our abilities and the like. Nothing like a good big topic, and that's, um, that's what I've chosen this, this afternoon. Um, this is n- new developments in assessment. I think, actually, it's a new look at old ass- developments in assessment um, more. But it's, it's, a, it's us, uh, this afternoon, taking a, a look at the impact of assessment, of the, the kind of assessments we may be involved in, um, particularly in relation to identity and learner identity. Um, uh, uh, Catherine Eccleston has talked about the idea of that we've got an assessment history um, and that we, we bring to lots of things our experience of assessment. For some of us, that might have been very positive and we might, uh, it might have shaped us in, we feel, a very positive way. For others, we may have those memories um, uh, of the way in which assessment has really shaped us in some way. And if you can't, if we're not thinking academically, all I normally do is just mention the words driving test um, and what that does to you and uh, all every, everybody goes through with something like that. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to look at this impact of, of assessment um, on, on, on identity. Um, I'm going to take some specific cases and I'll argue why I'm using the ones I am today. Um, but we could, we could choose just about any form of assessment and have a look at it this way. Uh, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to talk for a while, monologue dramatically for a while, and then um, we'll stop and perhaps have some discussion around that topic, and then I'll move on to a slightly different topic. Um, I, I have a handout for the slides, so there's no need to uh, try and get ev- everything down, um, but I'll give that out afterwards. So let me start with a a dramatic flourish. Uh, A couple of uh, quotations here um, of uh, impeccable uh, pedigree, but uh, unspeakably more depends on what things are called than on what they are. Creating new names and assessments and apparent truths is enough to create new things. Big claim, that. But you'll, this, this kind of ripples through everything I say this afternoon. And then Alan Hansen's um, sociological account, um, the individual in contemporary society is not so much described by tests as constructed by them. And I think that gets to the heart of a lot of things I'll be saying um, uh, this, this afternoon. I work from various assumptions about assessment, not all um, necessarily shared with, with everybody here. Um, I'm not sure what challenges I'm I'm likely to get from from this particular group. Um, The first is that assessment is a value-laden social activity and there is no such thing as culture-free assessment. Um, For a long time, it was uh, really uh, claimed that it was, and particularly one of the the topics I come on to this afternoon, in fact, feature the idea of intelligence testing and IQ testing. Uh, There was a strong claim early on that this was... Um, culture-free. Even the hardened psychometricians nowadays talk about culture-reduced testing. Um, 
so that's, that's all they're prepared to claim because we know um, it, whatever we ask, the way we, we decide on what to do, the curriculum or whatever it is, where our view of personality or whatever it is, um, this will be socially shaped. And what we're doing is it's a social function. Um, that leads into the second one. Um, assessment does not objectively measure what is already there, but rather creates and shapes what is measured. It is capable of making up people. That goes back to the Nietzsche, and it comes on to something I want to say, uh, to say later. But the, um, this is the notion, and again, it ran very strongly in the, the early 20th century, I think, and in the 19th century, that um, it's very much um, it, it's a neutral, it's a scientific measuring of what's out there. So it's a, it's a white coat job. You're not involved. You're simply, uh, you're simply recording, like some early views of natural science, you're simply recording what's there but it's out there whether you record it or not. Uh, and the assumption here is, no, the way you record it affects how it is uh, and how it's described and everything else. Um, and so we can create and shape through the way we assess something. And this could be uh, an academic assessment or it could be a personality assessment, but whatever, whatever classification systems we decide to use begins to shape how we see it. I'll work some examples of that. And then finally, the, that assessment impacts directly on what and how we learn and can undermine or encourage learning. Um, I think we're probably all more familiar with, with this, uh, this assumption that the way we assess shapes the way we teach and shapes the way we learn. If we assess in one way, we'll get a certain kind of teaching and a certain kind of learning. If we assess things very differently, it will lead to a different response in terms of teaching and learning. Very interesting example from just a couple of weeks ago, really, when the, um, the, 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 the ex, the, what was it called, the expert panel on assessment that the government set up, not one of them an acknowledged expert on assessment, which was interesting, um, truly. And then with some technical support from people who were recognised as experts, who only met them once at lunch. Um, so it was that kind of inquiry. Anyway, this was into the uh, assessment in the national curriculum here in England. Um, and they reported um, two, two weeks ago uh, on this. Their report generally supported the idea of high-stakes testing at 11 um, in English and mathematics. But interestingly, uh, they recommended that we drop science testing. And why should we drop science testing? Well, the main argument was that the testing is beginning to have an adverse effect on the teaching and learning in the classroom because it's a pencil and paper test, so kids are no longer doing any practical science. And as a result, Philip Aidy and others have persuaded them, as a result of this, um, children are not making... They're actually going backwards in Piagetian terms... Um, about what they understand conceptually and things like that, because you don't have to understand it very conceptually to do the pencil and paper science test. So the government has um, actually uh, taken this on and said, yes, it's having adverse effects on teaching and learning. And they've left, they've left English and mathematics there, uh, which I don't know many people who've been close up to aren't saying this is having an adverse effect on teaching and learning. But that's a, that's a different story because they need to keep English and maths because of the accountability system. Science wasn't part of that. National targets, all that kind of thing. So they have to stay no matter what the effect is on teaching and learning. A little aside, you'll get one or two of those as we go along. Um, 
So those, those, that, that's the idea that how, how we assess affects how we learn, how we teach. And I don't think there's much doubt about that, particularly in high-stakes testing situations that um, many here in England are familiar with anyway. Um, let, me, let me put some flesh on the bones here. This is a, uh, a, a well-known article uh, that uh, quite a few of you, I, I suspect, will have seen from... Uh, uh, Dylan William uh, and um, D- Diane Ray. Um, it's called um, "I'll Be a Nothing Then," and it's for some reason it's developed. Um, it's not quite fit the screen, uh, but that doesn't matter. Um, this is uh, Hannah being inter- in- interviewed, and she says, "I'm really scared about the Sats." Mrs. O'Brien. Um, a teacher at the school, came in and talked to us about our spelling, and I'm no good at spelling, and David is giving us times tables tests every morning, and I'm hopeless at times tables, so I'm frightened I'll do the SATs and I'll be a nothing. Uh, the SATs are the, uh, ele- the national test for 11-year-olds. Um, I'll be a nothing. Um, and Diane Ray, the uh, researcher, says, I, I, I don't understand, Hannah, you can't be a nothing. Yes, you can, because you've got to... Uh, because you have to get a level, like a level four or level five, and if you're no good at spellings and times table, you don't get those levels, and so you're a nothing. I'm sure that's not right. Yes, it is, because that's what Mrs. O'Brien was saying. Um, just to add, this is, so this is the, the, the sense of identity, and those of you who work in English, particularly primary classrooms, will be very well aware that children talk about each other and themselves as levels. Uh, they know what their level is, um, and they'll talk about other kids in terms of levels. This, um, we might say this was written in 1999, and things have changed since then. Uh, if anything, uh, the, the situation has hardened. But let me read you just a little bit more from the aforementioned testing times. The Tupperware moment, lovely blue cover, fits nicely on shelves, uh, that kind of thing, and, and a bargain at the, uh, whatever rate it was. Um, anyway... Um, this is a, a following conversation with, um, with another girl called Sharon. Um, and she's asked about what she's going to get. And she says, I think I'll get, a, I'll get a two. Only Stuart will get a six. So we've got a level two and a level six. Two is, four is the, the level that the, the government expects children to get. Wants 85% children to get at least four or above. Um, so if you're... Um, uh, I think I'll, I'll get a two. Only Stuart will get a six. So if Stuart gets a six, what will that say about him? Oh, he's heading for a good job and a good life, and it shows he's not going to be living on the streets and stuff like that. These are 11-year-olds talking. Um, and if you get a level two, what will that say about you? Oh, I might not have a good life in front of me, and I might grow up and do something naughty or something like that. Um, and this... Um, Tamara Bibby at the Institute has done some work uh, in the last couple of years on this, on uh, actually observing what went on in classrooms quite extensively. And she says, children start to think of themselves as levels, and it's wrapped up with morality and goodness. Good people work hard and listen in class. If it suddenly becomes clear your mate gets lower levels than you, are they a good person? It can put real pressure on a friendship. Um, so this is the, the impact. Also, uh, those with uh, uh, Helen's here, Helen Patrick and others with a historical bent, this has got a very 19th century feel to it as well, about exams, um, what doing well at exams meant not only that you'd achieve well in well, but it carried with it merit and it carried virtue 
uh, and everything else. There was a whole morality bound up with doing well in exams. Um, and this is, this is simply uh, picked up again here. So here we have um, the case of Hannah, who I could say it's a learning identity. She's worried that she's just going to be a nothing. Um, the author's point out, she's actually a talented dancer, good at art, and a very creative story writer. But you wouldn't guess from the way she's seeing herself now. She's, she's a nothing in the system terms. Um, this is more than learner identity, I think. This carries over into how you think about yourself. And again, we'll come back to the impact of things like the 11 plus on how people saw themselves, not just where it, where it left them. Um, I want to move on to a, another case, um, just to put some more flesh on the bones. Uh, and this is the, uh, the case of Ruth. Um, Ruth's an interesting one. Just some background before we, we look at the passage here. Uh, Ruth came top in the Irish Leaving Certificate a few years ago, and that's the passport to university in Ireland. It's, everybody takes it, and the, uh, it, it's, it's incredibly high stakes for the individual as to whether you get in. And she got the top marks out of all Ireland. And so she was interviewed by the Irish Times about how she managed to achieve this. Um, and some of the background to this um, is that, first of all, she switched schools um, and switched subjects. Um, so she, was a, she is an instrumental and strategic learner par excellence, really. She, uh, she knows what she wants and she's worked out how to get it. So she switches subjects. She was going to do law, but she switched to business um, and realised the business suite was a good good target. So she did every subject in the business suite. Then you had to do English and maths as well, so you can't just choose what, what some might say was the softer options, not me, but some might, might say a business was a, a choice of a, an easier route to get maximum marks. Um, but then they asked her about her English, where she got, uh, she got the required top mark as well. Um, learning the formula for each exam and practising it endlessly. I got an A1 in English because I knew exactly what was required for each question. Uh, I learned off the sample answers provided by the examiners and I knew how much information was required and in what format in every section of the papers. Um, well, she's not alone in that. Um, that's how you do well in these exams. This isn't the bit I like. There's no point in knowing about stuff that's not going to come up in the exams. I was always frustrated by teachers who would say, you don't need to know this for the exams, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, I wanted my A1. What's the point of learning material that won't come up in the exams? Um, you can imagine, uh, and you might get involved yourself, um, that this created a rich postbag, as they say in the Irish Times, about how come somebody who's um, clearly got all this, this talent, um, how can our highest achievers uh, to be, be so brutally dismissive of a broad view of learning? And this postbag went on and on. And some said, good on you, Ruth, you know, for playing the system. And others said, uh, um, and she came back and said, I chose not to fight the system, but to play with it. Um, I did what I had to do to achieve my goals. I played the game, if you will. I would not call this attitude utilitarian, but realistic. I got into college to study the courses I enjoy. I will have the pleasure of discovery in business and economics courses. Um, and then the letter columns carried on a bit after that. Thank God Ruth Borland is going to be an actuary. I would have hate to see somebody with her attitude going into medicine. Um, uh, <laughs> I 
think there are a few in medicine, uh, uh, in my experience, but there you go. Um, um, but Ruth, uh, as I point out, Ruth had the last, last laugh in, in all this, that they gave her an occasional column in the Irish Times uh, on how to prepare for exams. Uh, so, uh, so what we're doing here, th- this is very much the learner identity side. This is Ruth um, taking a very instrumental view of what, what was needed, very strategic, what, what I need, uh, what have you. And the kind of exams would be the kind of fr- preparation. So that's, in a, in a sense, that's a different kind of learner identity. Um, but again, those of us familiar who work inside schools will sometimes, I think, despair that there's only kind of instrumental learners left. Um, how often do you find kids who are doing something, uh, actually mainstream subject, doing it because they really enjoy doing it? You get it in art and drama and things like that, I suspect, but some of the, um, I, am, I am training to be a medic, I need these subjects, I need these grades, um, that, that kind of stuff, I think, comes through, uh, it's not just Ruth, uh, she's not by herself on, on this one. Let me move on, though, um, and this is the idea of um, making up people that uh, I hinted at earlier, and this is Ian Hacking um, making this quote, he's a, um, he's a philosopher of science, who's based in France, and he has some fairly um, unorthodox ideas, but uh, very useful in this context, I think. Um, so sometimes our scientists create the kind of people that, in a sense, did not exist before. This is making up science. Here's, um, and I'm going to go through this very quickly, because um, I'm, I'm picking up another strand of his thought straight afterwards. Um, this is how he thinks this happens. Um, and he, this is one of his examples, multiple personality disorder, that he develops this way. He also does things like more difficult ones, as far as I'm concerned. Autism, he does obesity. Um, he does all sorts of um, classifications that we, we now use uh, and ask the question, how did we get these classifications? How have we made these, these people up? Because in 1970, was... Um, if you like, the first recorded case of split personality, we would we'd often call it. Um, like Eve, was it, in, who had two personalities and switched from one to another. By the end of the 1970s, there were thousands of people with multiple personality disorders, and the average number of personalities had gone up to 17. So you didn't just have two, you had 17. And I point out, and got into trouble for the other day from a medic, um, that... Uh, it, they even had in places like New York what they call split bars, where people with personality, you know, split personalities could go. Um, and the thought is, it wouldn't need many of you uh, to have an evening of lots of personalities were, were, were there and things like that. Um, anyway, this is his procedures for this. Um, the idea that we begin to classify stuff. We notice there's a, something happening, so we begin to... Um, we begin to classify some, a certain percentage have it, there are extreme forms and mild forms, da-da-da-da. So and then we, we decide it's a disorder in some way. There's something, there's something up with this. Um, the people, um, there may be the uh, unhappy, inadequate individuals express this identity, or if it's genius, uh, lucky you. Um, unless you're a tortured genius. It's always a problem, isn't it? Um, not one I've experienced, but uh, I understand. Uh, the institutions, this is the interesting bit here, where what happens then is because we've identified something, we get sources of expertise about this who then start to publish stuff, uh, run conferences on it, 
Um, and it begins, and then you know you finish up on Oprah Winfrey show and things like that, which is what happened with multiple personalities. And then it took off all over the show and things like that. Um, so they address the disorders. So it becomes part of the vocabulary. The knowledge from the institution then is transmitted and gets put. You know, it becomes a, a kind of um, common knowledge, you know, that people with multiple personalities, there were 2% of the population, that 20% of those had been sexually uh, um, interfered with at a very young age. And, this kind of, and these were the, the stories or the, uh, the explanations that, that would go on. And then the experts then come on and announce things about that, who come out of the institutions that perpetuate the knowledge. And Hacking would say, we get ourselves into a very nice spiral here where we create, this is making up people, we create a certain sort of person and there's all the structures in place to support the idea that these people exist. They didn't exist before 1970. I mean, there were people with behaviours, but we didn't give them that label, so we didn't push it down that route. We may have pushed it down, uh, down another route. I mean, it, this, is quite, this is quite a difficult one. Um, where I'm not daring to go is if we think of our own situation. Um, I would think of ADHD, hyperactive thing. Um, dyslexia had a... I think it's, it's settled down now. Um, but w w there was a big argument 20, 30 years ago about whether dyslexia existed or not. Um, and, um, as I say, he goes on... Uh, and Asperger's, he does autism, Asperger's. Um, this isn't to say these behaviours don't exist, that what, what is being recognised here are that people have got some, um, some unusual behaviours or problematic behaviours in some way. But as soon as you start to do this classify, institutionalise them, um, they take on a life of their own and then you begin to make up people. Other people get put, put into this and it begins to harden in terms of identity. So you get yourself a label um, that way. Perhaps we'll come back to that as, as a discussion. But I just want to move on to, the, for me, the more important part for my argument. And this is what he calls his engines of discovery. This is how we find out about these... Um, this is how we make these things up. Um, the first is these... Um, of the ten steps. So these four... Uh, the idea of um, we, we count... Uh, we quantify, we create norms, we correlate. In other words, we're doing descriptive stuff to identify and we're placing people on curves or in quartiles or what have you. Uh, and then we create norms that 10% of the population has got this. Not, um, and we begin to correlate it with other things and they are the least successful members or the most successful members of the community or whatever it is. We can't stop there, most of us, it would seem. Um, and what we have to do is, if there is a behaviour, we then have to say, well, where does it come from? And we quickly, uh, in Hacking's model here, we quickly begin to say, well, it's, it's, it's medical, um, it, or there's a kind of physiological origin. So we begin to medicalise, biologize, and if you've got it, if it's part of you, then comes the question, where did it come from? So the other retreat is to say, ah, well, if it's, uh, if it's medical and it's therefore part of our biology, we must have inherited it, so we begin to geneticise it as well. So it, it came from elsewhere. So we reify it, we turn it into something that we've got and we inherited, um, if we're not careful. And then we normalise it and bureaucratise it 
um, the idea that there, there are then institutions about this and we, uh, uh, we begin to deal with it that way and we have programmes for it and we have uh, uh, support systems for it and that kind of thing and we bureaucratise it. The last one, the reclaim our identity, is simply uh, in, in Hacking's view that every now and then it reaches a point where the people, the, the poor, the people who have had this injury just said, that's enough. Uh, we wish to object to this. We protest about this, this label. Um, and it could be um, it, whatever the, lab, the label is, the protest about uh, the gay gene and things like that, whatever it is, that the, there may be some uh, uh, protest. I am moving on because I'm going to pick up the case of IQ testing um, as my big, if you like, my big argument around this, this model about how uh, a form of assessment can shape how we think about ourselves and think about other people um, as well. The, what's interesting with the, uh, the 10 uh, engines that uh, hacking developed is that the, the prime contributors to the first four uh, were themselves psychologists heavily involved in IQ testing. If you think about Galton and distributions, um, uh, Spearman correlations, factor analysis, uh, creating norms, having standard deviations, um, these were things that actually they, they gave to other areas as well that have become part of the, uh, part of the scenery now. Um, so these, these folk who developed IQ testing... Um, had powerful ways of dealing with that first four section, the first four engines, the, uh, the, the classification. Um, I think what... I'm, I'm taking IQ as a kind of provocative case, and this is, if we're talking about new developments in assessment, you're going to say IQ isn't a new development. In fact, it's on its way out. It's a thing of the past. I'm arguing A, it isn't, and B, it's gone underground, um, mainly in the form of ability testing, which I'll come back to. So we don't, we don't talk about IQ anymore, but we've got some other language which is actually doing the same, same job. So I don't think it's gone away, um, and, I think it, um, and I think it does rep represent um, an important kind of example of this um, anyway, so here we have the, uh, the IQ testing. We've got the developments of uh, uh, BNA, um, mental age against chronological age. Then we got into standard deviations, a mean of 100 and, uh, and the like. So normal distribution curves, worrying about the 2% at one end and the 2% at the other end. Um, that was the classification correlating it with uh, academic success and everything else. So it's a, it becomes a big predictor of where you should go and what you should do. Uh, the interesting bit for me is then at this point um, where, where we start getting our explanations from. Um, Alfred Binet, who is my hero, who uh, actually developed the first IQ tests in Paris in the, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, all he would do was go the first four. He wouldn't go any further than that. He wasn't going to start um, shoving it into... He just said we, what we were trying to do is improve people's intelligence because they can't cope with school at the moment. We need to do, I think he called them mental orthopaedics, uh, to get them ready for school, which is remarkably like brain gym, actually, when you look at it. But there you go. Um, Medicalise. Uh, then we got the medicalised um, biologised 
when, we, when it first started, IQ testing, if you were sending somebody to a special school, it was a doctor, a medic, who sent somebody. They did the tests at that stage. Psychologists could take you to a certain level, but then the medics stepped in for some of that early on. Um, and some of the, um, uh, the terminology. Um, and I point out that I have several copies of the vinyl uh, Gordon is a Moron by Jilted John, an old punk classic that people used to buy me regularly. Um, but some of the terminology, the imbecile, the moron, uh, those sorts of things, are, are current insults were actually the technical categories that were used within intelligence tests. Um, so, and they were very medical. They had a medical slant. That was the point about those. Then you've got the job of, well, if it's a medical thing, where did it come from? It's biological. Um, where does intelligence come from biologically? And that's a good one. Um, and as you get, there's no one... Uh, they've all gone in different directions. Those who are very committed to the idea of an inherited fixed IQ um, or intelligence. Um, and uh, energy, it was kind of energy levels... Uh, is, is one explanation. Jensen's still on that, you know. He's still he's injecting glucose into animals at the moment to try and uh, uh, see who reacts quickest and fastest. Always very interested in kind of uh, energy stuff. Complexity, um, that was Bert and others, cranial complexity. Uh, reaction times, again, Jensen's uh, very interested in those, um, as were the very early testers as well. So the, we, we look for, we try and identify where it is. We then move and say, then, if, if it's there, where did it come from? Ah, well, it must be genetic then, because you seem to be born with it, and it doesn't change. So it must have started off um, in the wiring, as it were. Um, and that's where we get the, uh, the innate and fixed, um, the geneticized. It then sees its way through into... Things like selection for education. Some, some can cope with grammar schools, 20% can. Uh, the, rest, the rest can't. Um, I'm oversimplifying, I think. Yes, yes. Um, uh, you bureaucratise it that way because then you start selecting for it. So you have a, an IQ exam that selects people for, this, um, for the different forms of education that suit them best. You'd probably reclaim your identity through the comprehensive movement, say it's unfair to select at 11 because they're not reliable enough. Everybody should go to the, uh, to the same schools. Um, I've put Northern Ireland there because uh, they've got a problem. They've scrapped IQ, they've scrapped the intelligence test because they were so unreliable. Something like 20 or 30% of kids were going to the wrong place anyway. Um, but they haven't thought what else to do, but they, they can't get rid of grammar schools either because that's such a sectarian issue so you keep the grammar schools get rid of the selection tests and then think um, so what will what will happen is the grammar schools will run selection tests i think is the probably the way it's going at the moment um trivial pursuits my speciality um just some thoughts about this and this is this idea of moving right down these 10 engines of discovery um this is terman uh, Terman was the one who developed the standard, uh, the Stanford Binet. Binet did the French, started it off, and then uh, Stanford University, where Terman was, took it over, and that's probably the second major, most major um, individual IQ test uh, still, uh, probably, to this, this day. Um, so the children of successful and cultured parents test higher than children from wretched and ignorant homes for the simple reason that their heredity is better. 
this is pretty clear cut then. Um, you could put it round exactly the other way, but let's leave it there for the moment. Uh, the general intellectual factor, this is Spearman's G that he got through factor analysis techniques. Interestingly, Thurston, at much the same time, didn't believe in a single intelligence. He was a faculty man, so he managed by a different factor analysis technique to find eight different uh, intelligence factors. Um, so, but it, that's one of these things about... That goes back to my second assumption... It isn't a neutral white coat thing. Even the, the statistical techniques you use um, help get you the result you want. And perhaps the thing I need to emphasise, all these people came with huge social agendas before they started doing their IQ stuff. It wasn't that they did this testing and decided this is what fell out of the data. Um, Galton, who probably started it off in England, he, he coined the phrase eugenics. Uh, where the, he wanted the enforced restricted breeding of the poor. Uh, he was very much interested in, uh, in, in genius and, uh, and worried that the national stock was going down because the poor were breeding faster than the rich. Um, something that's with us today. And you're rich because you've got good genes, of course, uh, in, in this logic. Um, and Bert, Bert was very much... They also campaigned against immigration into America, um, on the grounds that people coming off, off the boats who didn't speak English had very low IQ scores. There's a surprise, which they gave them in English um, and passed legislation. So they had huge... So they had racial views. They certainly had views that males were more intelligent than females, um, and they had class views as well, that the, the ideal intelligence came from, believe it or not, um, a white... Um, a white upper-class male. Um, there you go. Uh, and, and, and the testing proved that. Um, the general intellectual factor appears to be inherited or at least inborn. Neither knowledge nor practice, neither interest or industry will avail to increase it. Now, that is hard, G, uh, in that sense. Nothing can change this. The worrying bit was Bert was the head of the Inner London Special Education Service at the time. Uh, running special schools uh, with this, and all he could do was say, well, there are some <coughs> special intelligences, some S intelligences, either side of G, that you can improve a bit on. But, uh, interestingly, Binet was the senior psychologist for Paris, and his view was that our job is to improve intelligence. So you've got that conflict of uh, uh, philosophies. And once it got into the kind of Anglo-Saxon, the Anglophone world... It, it really did harden up. And we don't see similar views, I don't think, uh, in Asia and elsewhere, Confucian tradition and things like that, see it all very, very differently to this hardwired uh, stuff. And just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, Chris Woodhead, two weeks ago, um, I think it would be unlikely that large numbers of grammar school kids would come from these disadvantaged areas. The genes are likely to be better if your parents are teachers, academics, lawyers, whatever. Um, and the nurture is likely to be better. Well, yes. Um, and this last one, uh, why do we think we can make him, not very bright Jimmy, brighter than God made him? Now, that is, we're right back in the 19th century. So, uh, uh, you know, with the idea it's fated, there's nothing you can do about it. Little Jimmy's born limited, not very bright. He's a D.H. Lawrence figure, apparently, but... Um, 
uh, who Lawrence despaired about one Friday afternoon uh, in class. Um, but th- th- what we've got here is, is Woodhead appealing to the, you know, the fixed order. God said, this is exactly what's come through Term and Burt, um, Gorton, that whole, that whole tradition. So when he pops up in the newspapers with his latest book, and this, is, this, this was part of the interview blurb around this, um, he actually represents a tradition. This isn't, this isn't suddenly something wild from nowhere. There's a, a strong strand that has run right, uh, right through on this. Let me give you two, um, two alternative interpretations of, of what, we've, what I've been rattling on about. Um, this has been a, in 1909... Um, recent thinkers seem to have given their moral support to these deplorable verdicts by affirming that an individual's intelligence is a fixed quantity, a quantity that cannot be increased. We must protest and react against this brutal pessimism. Uh, We must demonstrate it is founded on nothing. Um, He saw this coming. He died very young, uh, but he he saw this coming um, when the Americans determined and the, the, the way they were beginning to look at this. All he said was, um, we're not interested in what's going on, or what we're interested in is finding out what somebody can do and helping them to do more. And we're not going to move into uh, uh, biology and genetics in the same way. Uh, very important for me, this, um, this last one of uh, Stephen Jay Gould, The Mismeasure of Man, great book uh, on this whole history. Um, the truly salient issues are malleability and flexibility. Um, and I'll, I'll just press that again. Malleability, we can inherit stuff, but it's what can be done with it. So I'm not saying there's no genetics. I'm not saying there aren't different dispositions. It's where you go with that and what, what, what's the room for manoeuvre, if you like. The malleability and flexibility, not fallacious passing by percentages. Is it 60% in you know, nurture and 40% nature or the other way around? A trait may be 90% heritable but entirely malleable. Um, a $20 pair of eyeglasses uh, may fully correct a defect of vision that is 100% heritable. Um, so it's, um, I, I suppose that's where my case, if you like, is, is moving. It's not that we're not born with stuff, and it's not that we, uh, we may be born with different dispositions, reactions, and this kind of thing, but it's what's, what's, uh, what can be done in terms of change, malleability and flexibility become the issues. For Bert, it was fixed. Um, heredity meant inevitable. You couldn't do anything about it. Um, and those are the, the, if you like, the rival, uh, the rival interpretations. So where we're left with that is that for many of us, in terms of identity, uh, I've used this case because um, for many of us, uh, no, not many because there's so many young young ones in this room. But for many of us, um, things like the, uh, the 11 plus, the IQ test that shaped which school you went to, that kind of thing, which is still around in various parts of the country and various uh, parts of education. Um, the effect of those was quite profound in terms of identity, whether you got it or you didn't get it. Um, uh, was a, meant a change to life chances and particularly it meant about how you saw yourself uh, and how you operated uh, from then on. Some, for some, it was a question of then digging in and, uh, and, uh, and demonstrating how wrong this had been. 
um, uh, that so much had been based on it. Uh, Michael Howe says if, if we took the same attitude to the driving test, that if you failed it the first time, you would spend your life on public transport. Um, we'd, we'd say that's, that's ridiculous, but it's the same length of time that it takes to do a driving test, as it, you know, in a sense, as it takes to do an IQ test, and a great deal followed from it in that, that sense. But just picking up this idea then of, um, from this very general debate, um, is this thing of the assessments we've got, what do they reflect uh, you know, where are they, what are they doing, if you like, socially or culturally? Where do they come from? Um, the, the whole idea of what's, what's the kind of history and what are the assumptions and what are the social um, understandings around that, I think become very important. We don't, it goes back to my original assumptions, we don't get what we've got, the exams we've got or the tests we've got by accident. They're a product of the society and they're serving a need of the society at any given time. And perhaps by going back, we can sometimes just um, say, have we just taken these on? Um, should we be asking more radical questions about our assessments, what we're trying to do, this, this kind of thing? Um, let me leave it there then and just move on um, to what I see as the problem of ability. And I'm talking very much about what goes on in schools. The discourse, teacher discourse around ability in schools is very interesting, I think. Um, uh, and we start off with um, a fairly radical sociological pair, uh, David Gilbon, Deborah Udell. Um, ability acts as an unrecognised version of intelligence and IQ. If we were to substitute IQ for ability, many alarm bells would ring that currently remain silent because ability acts as an untainted yet powerful reconstitution of all the beliefs previously wrapped up in terms such as intelligence. Um, and so the claim here is we don't talk about IQ and we don't discuss people's IQ scores, but excuse me, we do talk about their CATS scores. If you know secondary schools in England, 70% of children, when they arrive at age 11, 12, their, uh, their key stage two tests, which they took at the end of primary, are largely ignored, and they're made to do another test, the Cognitive Abilities Test that NFER publishes. 70% of kids um, take this. And what that does is come back with a score of your cognitive ability and a projection about how you should do in your GCSE in five years' time. Uh, and it's on cognitive, it's on your reasoning skills, uh, visual reasoning, uh, spatial reasoning and the like. Um, NFER are very careful to say how you should interpret this, that this is only about achieved or developed abilities, but that's not what happens. Uh, that's my interest in, in CATS and this whole language of ability, because you will hear teachers, uh, you will hear teachers say things like, this child has overachieved. Um, because the line um, predicted this, and they've over, overachieved on their ability. Uh, and um, certainly, Gilborn and Udell have got quotes about set teachers saying, well, you can't improve somebody's ability, can you? Um, that's, um, that's an interesting one, because I, I, what, what I talk about here, some of you have heard me bang on about this, but the, the interpretation is level one and level two, I've called it. 
Um, ability, if we talk about developed ability, it's what somebody can do. So if you've got ability at music, it's because you can play music. If you've got ability at swimming, it's because you can swim. You've shown it, you've demonstrated it. So there's that kind of descriptive developed ability, fine. It's when you then start to infer other things. Uh, and the main inference that I'm concerned with, uh, that I, I've come across in schools... Um, is that you begin to infer that the ability is the cause of achievement, not part of it. It's not just a manifestation of various forms of achievement. It's, it's the thing you bring into school, the ability you brought in, which is, uh, this is where Gilbon gets this sort of idea from as well. It's actually, you could substitute the word intelligence, only that's not very fashionable. Um, so we, we use ability. Um, so that's the, uh, the notion. And then the ability labelling. Um, Hart, forgot the first name. Um, exerts an active, powerful force within school and classroom processes, helping to create the very disparities of achievement that it purports to explain. Um, so if you, if you stream by ability, um, you get, what happens is the kids in the high stream will, will do better, we, we can predict those, those kinds of things, uh, and it becomes, it becomes self-fulfilling. That would be the, the argument out of, out of this kind of uh, ability labelling uh, that way. And we get that particularly with the, uh, the, the notion of gifted and talented in schools. Um, what, what is... That's a label, um, and that's a label that... Is it 5 or 10%, depending on the latest regulation, really, um, which what you've got in your school, and it's, it's relative to the school, but your top 10% are gifted and talented. In terms of labelling, that means the other 90% are um, untalented and ungifted, or, you know, what, what are the benefits of that label? And again, I think we're back to politics. I mean, the reason we got gifted and and talented, was uh, a move to keep middle-class parents keeping their kids in state schools and having to promise parents they would do something for the more able kids, the high-ability kids who were coming there and were not being stretched enough. That's, I mean, that's, that's legitimate. Um, it's whether the labelling actually has uh, a positive or, a, a, you know, has unintended consequences, perhaps, uh, for both the kids who are labelled that way, um, and for, uh, for those who are not. This is a funny moment to, um, to raise this, but um, I don't know whether any of you... It's, it's, it's not as good as this, but... Um, oh, sorry. It's not as good... Um, it's not as... Um, it's, but I don't, any of you come across Malcolm Gladwell, he of the frizzy hair, um, outliers... And he's done the tipping point and he's done some other stuff as well. So he, he's, he's, he likes to turn things on their head. And th but this is a really, it's an infuriating book. Did you find it? I mean, it's a pun? Oh, right, OK, right. Well, he, like all these, these ones, these kind of journalistic things, it's brilliant for the first 70 pages. And then, uh, but actually, this one, he sustains better than the other ones I've looked at of his. But the outliers are people who we would say these are very these have got high ability these are geniuses and he's trying to account um, for high ability but he refuses he, he will only do it in kind of social terms and his his claim is very journalistic but it's uh, I love it um, that nobody who we regard as a genius or of high high ability 
um, has done less than 10,000 hours at whatever they're gifted at. So we talk about people being gifted and naturals, and all the naturals have worked harder than we unnaturals or whatever we are who don't do things as well. And he takes a series of examples, um, which I really enjoyed, um, for example, Bill Gates, he takes a biography of him. We say, how did somebody who dropped out from Harvard at age 19, 20, how on earth did he come to do all this? Well, he's done his investigative journalism. What happened with Gates was he just happened to go to a school um, at which one of the governors was um, the, on a mainframe computer company, a building company, and it was the first time they'd started doing remote terminals. And he got one for the school. So Bill Gates, at age 13, was on a remote terminal programming when the universities hadn't even got them. So by the time he arrived, yes, you guessed, by the time he arrived at Harvard or wherever he went, um, he'd done his 10,000 hours. He'd been logging it up as a 13, 40, 50. Uh, he does the same with Steve Jobs, who was um, actually found a 24-hour computing centre in his university for the medics and used to programme all night didn't do his, whatever his subject was. He just went in there and programmed. And the other one that I'll... Uh, and then I'll try and stop, because I love it. Um, uh, the, the other one is the Beatles. And he said, how come, you know, we say these, these, were, you know, these shaped music, they did all this kind of thing. His answer is 10,000 hours. It was when they did the Hamburg run, a little-known bit of the Beatles. But they spent a couple of years... Um, uh, working in strip joints in Hamburg where they'd put to play for six nights a week for six or seven hours and to try and keep people entertained or even listening uh, in, in that, those sorts of sleazy joints, um, you really had to be able to belt out good tunes and grasp attention and do all this, that and the other. So his point was by the time the Beatles got back and started their real career, they'd done their 10,000 hours. Um, um, Michael Howe does a similar thing with this kind of genius experiment, but he takes Mozart as well, who, um, you know, wonderful child genius, da-da-da-da-da-da. But by the age of 10, he'd done more music practice than the average graduate music student, because his dad, Adam Attit, who was a, prided himself on being the greatest music teacher, because Mozart's sister was good as well. Um, and he, he was doing three hours a day when he was three, or what have you. Um, and uh, I'll just throw in one more very provocative bit that I'm not sure stands up from, uh, from Gladwell, but he raises the, the question of uh, students from Pacific Rim countries, why do they do so well in so many subjects? Um, and his answer is, they work harder. Uh, and he says, if, this is where he gets speculative. If you come from a rice-growing culture, there's always something you should be doing. You work all the time. If you come, and he parallels it to French and American agriculture, half the year there's nothing to do, so you, you're, you're, good at, you're good at sort of... The French just used to go to bed for the winter, uh, you know, because there was nothing you could do. Um, um, just to keep warm, I, you understand. Um, th th that way. So, he, I mean, his point is that this, it, most of this kind of achievement is cultural. It comes from very particular cultural backgrounds, and we... we bring forward the culture, and that those who we often regard as um, having natural ability, um, actually, and be it Tiger Woods, Beckham, Lewis, I like the sporting examples, but I, I get carried away. Uh, they've all done more work than anybody else at practising what they do. And the swimmers, you know, Phelps and what have you, 
in the water first, last out. Um, these, these kind of training things. So he's, he's simply making the point that if we... Um, the idea of really underlining this developability and how we have to be quite careful with our language that calling somebody a natural uh, may actually do them an injustice in, you know, in, the, in the sense that they've, they've worked very hard to get, get there. Um, whereas we've got, and I think again it's a cultural assumption, that this effortless superiority that we should, you know, like male students particularly, don't like to pretend that they, they, like to pretend that they haven't done any work you know, because it should come easy, and then they go away and work as hard as they can in, in private, if you like. Um, but that's all to do with the idea that if, if I was good at it, it would come very easily, and I'm having to work quite hard at this. If you compare that to a Confucian tradition, that's not the tradition at all. Creativity comes from uh, a great deal of work and going over stuff and things like that. Um, I am getting overexcited uh, here. Um, Okay, I want to move on to where we go uh, with with this. Um, What what do we need to do to... We're not going to... I think what's been helpful for me from the discussion and everything is that we're not going to be able to stop classifying or um, grouping people or making decisions about how, how people should be done. It's to do with can we do it in a way that causes the least harm or does no harm or actually does positive good? Can we find ways of doing it better? Uh, Perhaps I'm asking. Um, And one of these might be um, a a modest step, the idea of limiting our assessment ambitions. Um, I've said focus on achievement and by that I mean rather than um, aptitude um, ability where we're claiming to predict something about the future or we're claiming to, that we know something about somebody's personality structure and things like that. I think we're better off um, sticking to what measuring what people are doing and, uh, and, and then the second point, not, not inferring too much from this not trying to make big claims uh, on the basis of what is really a couple of hours' work by somebody in a very particular context. Um, And we're saying we understand them. And in some cases, with things like IQ tests, if you take the logic of what I've done with the the hard lines, we're actually saying uh, we know something about your parents. Uh, from the results. That's actually what the inference is, if you believe it's, it, if it's 90% heredity. Um, this test tells me an awful lot about your parents. Um, I mean, that's, that, I'm making that ridiculous, but I think it's to do with sticking... What, does, what can we uh, sensibly uh, infer from test results and how cautious do we have to be about, about them? And it's interesting that at the moment there's this debate which... Paul Newton, particularly, who is joining you, uh, that's, a, that's a good, uh, that's a good appointment. Um, but I mean, he's raised he's raised the question of uh, uh, the uh, how much do we discuss reliability uh, in this? If we put in um, the error uh, attached to grades, uh, or if we even discuss the fact that grades may only be um, you, you may only be accurate plus or minus one grade. I mean, the system couldn't stand it, so there's, you know, it won't, in a sense, it won't go anywhere. Um, but it's a very important information, piece of information that um, we tend to, and it's the same with some of the um, learning styles and things like that. If somebody tells us we're kinesthetic, 
Um, all right, we're kinesthetic then. And there's no kind of, how do we challenge this? How do we, uh, um, how do we limit the kind of interpretations that are placed on this? And that's the interpret the results more cautiously. And the steps three and four, I think, are critical for me, anyway, my interpretation of stuff, as you've probably worked out, is acknowledging the context, and that's, that's the social context, the cultural context, what, what's going on, what's the purpose of this assessment, you know, why are we doing it, uh, what, what's it carrying. Um, um, and I think what's... Uh, and recognise the importance of interaction. I think that's, that's linked to it. That, uh, I think... John, you know better than I, but often in the, the more psychometric side of things, um, the technicians like to get rid of the interaction. They like just the main fact. I'm saying, actually, the interaction uh, is the most interesting bit of this. Uh, that's, that's at a technical level, um, but also at a classroom level. But what's really important is the quality of the interaction. Um, and what, what's going on here when somebody takes an assessment, when assessment goes on. And it fits very nicely with assessment for learning, which I think um, we've been working on a second-generation kind of definition of this, but I think it's come round very much to uh, the heart of assessment for learning is the quality of the interaction in the classroom, what goes on between um, uh, teacher and teacher, student and student, uh, teacher and student uh, uh, and the like. But the, the importance of context and the importance of interaction. Um, let me just... Um, yes, I, I will. I've got, I have got time. Uh, you don't need to go home for now, do you? Um, no, this is, I've only one more slide after this. Be patient. Um, I want to pick up on somebody, James Flynn. I think he's been to Cambridge and done bits, hasn't he, here? I mean, I think he's... Um, eventually found a very good solution to a problem he was raising for himself for a long time and couldn't answer his own question, which is uh, well, it's very honest. Uh, he thought he had, and then he changed his mind, and he's got a much better answer now, I think. Um, and that's uh, the Flynn effect, as you know, and this is going back to IQ, is that there's been a dramatic increase of IQ, average IQ scores over generations. So we're kind of... Uh, Put very um, simplistically, we're, we're 30 points smarter than our great-grandparents. And Flynn always knew this isn't the case, you know, that um, he doesn't see any, uh, any sense that uh, in, in social terms and the way we, we, we deal with things that we're necessarily much smarter than our, our grandparents and things, but the results suggest we are. Um, so he's trying to find out what is it that's caused it. It can't be genetic which is why I use him as a major argument against the idea that intelligence is fixed. If it is, how come it's been improving with every generation? That can't be genetic at this, this speed. Um, but he's got two, two devices that he's quite interested in. I'll bring to you, you may have seen. He's got, he, he's got what he calls social multipliers. Um, and this, he thinks, is why we've suddenly done better on certain of the subtests of IQ. Very interesting, we don't do better on arithmetic, vocabulary, all the things that our grandparents needed. Um, we, we've not done, there are no dramatic improvements on those. The things where the dramatic improvements have come are things like Raven's matrices, the abstract reasoning, 
Um, that's where we've made our improvement on some of the subtests of the score. Uh, and his, his idea is that the social multiplier is that there's something gone on in society that makes it a lot easier for us to get these items. Um, and some of you have heard him, he uses the example of um, what, what, do, uh, uh, what do dogs and rabbits have in common? What does a dog and a rabbit have in common? And he reckons that um, 100 years ago, or in the, um, yeah, 100 years ago, the answer would have been dogs chase rabbits. Functional, uh, that's the thing. Whereas now, uh, what you get the points for is both are mammals. Um, to which, um, he, he says, our grandparents would have said, so what? What a useless piece of information. Um, but that's what's rewarded. It's the abstract classification that's rewarded and has been right through on, on IQ tests. So suddenly, that, that doesn't seem like a big deal for us. So we're picking up on things like Raven's matrices, you know, where you, you get the columns and the rows and you have to work out what's in the bottom right by looking at the patterns going across and the patterns coming down. A bit like Sudoku with stars and squares and things. Um, but it, it's, it's that kind of thing. Well, if we've got that in the culture, if we're doing those kind of puzzles and we're doing Excel spreadsheets and we're doing all this sort of thing, well, we, we're obviously going to pick up much more, more easily on that. So that's his social multiplier. Um, and so we're interacting with our culture and our context. The move, two things he says. One is the move to more abstract reasoning, which is encouraged in our education and everything else. Um, and the second is that a um, hundred years ago, um, reasoning was very rule-governed because society was very rule-governed and things. And now we reward thinking on your feet and coming up with new solutions. We put people in situations, new situations, to see what they do with it. That wasn't the pattern then. Um, so the idea is that uh, we've, we've suddenly now got a society where, we've, uh, where we learn to think quickly when we see something unfamiliar. And that would have stumped uh, our grandparents who would say, I, I don't know, I haven't got the rules for this. And we're saying, you've actually to make up your rules. And we're encouraged to do that. So that, that would be that one. The second one he talks about, and probably more relevant, is the idea of the individual multiplier. This takes us back to ability and everything else. How is it that some, um, some uh, folks start off very, very alike and then one finishes up doing much better than the other? Um, sorry about the sporting thing, but he uses this. Um, and he takes the, I think he takes the idea of basketball. And, and says, what are the individual multipliers here? It's a, it's a, it's a nice one because it's, uh, it's visual for those who are visually uh, learning style to think. And I haven't given you much in terms of graphics today. Um, but the, the, the basketball is, um, he says, there's two, two kids. Um, one of them's two inches taller than the other at age nine. Um, and you're selecting somebody for the basketball group. So you pick the taller one. Uh, the taller one gets to practice more. Um, the practicing leads to coaching. You get in a team, you get more coaching, so the team gets better, you get better. If the team does well, you go to the regionals, you get even better super coaches, and you may finish up in, in an academy doing you know, basketball uh, things. Meanwhile, me, Shorty, um, gets nothing out of this because I didn't get put in the first thing, so I just throw it through the hoop and the garage um, and things like that, and that's, that's it. And before long, we're saying, he's a natural the one who's been through it, had all the things. And he said often it's to do with those little 
uh, those little advantages that multiply and multiply and multiply, and that's that's where where the difference leads. Um, and I think that, again, that's 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 quite a powerful thing, and certainly seems to fit with uh, my sporting heroes and everything else. Uh, often, who started very early and just multiplied and multiplied. You don't need to know that David Beckham won the national free kick competition when he was 11, or that Lewis Hamilton won the uh, radio-guided little cars around car parks when he was six and was a go-kart champion by the time he was 11. Um, Tiger Woods was on TV when he was three, hitting a golf ball. He's had his... They've all had the 10,000... Now, now, there's an interesting one about how come the interaction worked, and that's what fascinates me. That's probably where I'll go off in, yeah, and try and do some work. But what is it that makes... What we all respond to is, yeah, but you could have given me 10,000 hours at the piano and it would still have been chopsticks, you know. Um, <laughs> now, um, so what is, it, what is it in the interaction that causes... And we've got it with tennis, the tennis dads and mums and things, haven't we, that some kids... Are just, and swimming as well, where the parents give, really drive their kids. Some respond, and music as well, some of the harsh regimes that some of the top musicians have gone through from their parents um, for some it works and for some it doesn't work so, and we all have got that feeling there's certain things that 10,000 hours would make not a dent in my ability um, but there are other things where if we just had those individual multipliers if we'd just been a bit better earlier on or got a sense that I'm quite good at this you know perhaps relative to others and I get a bit more help and a bit more help off, off you go. So the, the notion of interaction and that social interaction and the individual interaction, the individual multiplier, I think are, uh, an, an imp- again, an important way of interpreting the kind of labels we give to people um, so that we, we give a proper, proper interpretation. Um, the step five uh, is the... Uh, uh, create sustainable as, uh, assessment, and Mary, Mary touched on it, but I like David Bowd's double duty of assessment. Um, and he says assessment, the primary thing about assessment is do no harm. Um, uh, and his, his point is that often assessment has harmed people in terms of their identity, their feelings about themselves and everything else. So his double duty of assessment is any assessment act must also contribute in some way to learning beyond the, to learning beyond the immediate task. Assessment that meets the needs of the present and prepares students to meet their own future needs. Nice balance there, because he is saying we need assessment in the present, so we can't do it all about um, learning to learn and things. It's got to be learning something, and we need to know how well we're learning. But at the same time, it doesn't end with that bit of learning, which is where your instrument, you mentioned it, John, that your instrumental learners finish, the test is over, that's that, you know, the exam's finished, I don't need that anymore, gone. Um, how do we do assessment in a way that gives us a, an accurate picture of the here and now, but um, leaves us better off in terms of understanding? And I think it comes back, your student comes back to self-assessment, having a sense of being able to judge the quality of their work and that kind of thing that they can they can carry forward as well. Um, one more. Um, this is, I'm sorry, the text is a bit dense for those of but I am reading it, um, uh, uh, if I can. Um, a theory of education has to spell out how children take on responsibilities for learning and how 
and how one, whether teacher or learner, goes about judging whether those responsibilities have been met. Teachers are notoriously disposed to explain children's success in terms of putative abilities and learning styles rather than on the conditions that make learning easy or difficult. Um, so he's pointing out uh, something else, David Olson, he was criticising multiple intelligences at the time, but um, he's pointing out something else, that uh, we have a danger of labelling in order to get away from some of our own responsibilities as well. As teachers, and I've certainly done this, you just decide this isn't a very good class or they're not making the effort or things like that. Um, Mary, from your Learning How to Learn project, there's that lovely, uh, uh, it's Beth and Marshall, that, that thing where they interview teachers who they thought were in the spirit of assessment for learning, really had got the principles and understood why they were doing it, and those who were just in the letter, who were going through the wait time, the traffic lights, and going through the motions, but not understanding why they did it. And when you looked at their account of lessons that had been observed, the ones in the spirit always beat themselves up if the lesson hadn't gone well. They said, I must have got that wrong, I must have got this wrong. The letter people, more often than not, said, this group of kids just weren't motivated, they weren't there, I don't know what's up with them, that kind of thing. So the, the, the idea of um, moving towards um, responsibilities and pupils' responsibilities for learning, what, what their obligations are as well, rather than just using uh, easy labels... And his final one, agency, intentionality and responsibility could become the central features of a psychology that has special relevance for education. Abilities, traits and dispositions can be left to find a new place in the national, natural sciences or else relegated to the dustbin of history. Amen. Uh, okay, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. An extremely stimulating talk, I'm sure you'll agree. I'm sure you'll all join me in saying thank you very much, Gordon. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.